pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you that indeed we are bound for the promised land because of Jesus and his perfect life and his sacrificial death for us. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. And I pray now that as we come to the scriptures, I pray that we would see it clearly for what it is. It is the very word of God and the power to transform our lives. So I pray that you would overcome resistance in our hearts and in our minds, that we would truly give ourselves to you in this time, and that you would continually and effectually change our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we find Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to read through the Beatitudes, though my focus will be on Jesus' statement that he has called his disciples as salt and light. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet." You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A few years ago here at Grace, I had the opportunity to preach on the Beatitudes. And so my plan when I do have opportunity to preach here, will be to continue through the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, I will only touch on it briefly in light of my focus on the passage of the call to be salt and light. But I am incredibly excited that in a few weeks from now, Jerry Bridges will be here speaking on the Beatitudes. Um, So I will leave most of that for him, and I'll just barely touch on the Beatitudes. So let's begin by considering Jesus' statement to his disciples in verses 13 through 16, that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Here's the scene. If you remember, at this time, Jesus' public ministry had began, and people were starting to follow him. And so Jesus went up on a mountain, and crowds were all around him. And the crowds are listening in, and while they're doing that, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he begins to tell them about the character traits of a true follower of Christ. Namely, that they are to be poor in spirit, that they are to mourn their sin, 
that they are to be meek and they are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're to be merciful, pure in heart, and they're to be peacemakers. And if that is our character, then it will follow that we will have profound influence in the world as salt and light. But then Jesus continues. The last beatitude, he says, Blessed are those, or blessed are you, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And just as Jesus' disciples needed to hear it then, we need to hear this now. That as people come face to face with the message of Christ, when they come face to face with the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus came to save sinners, when people come face to face with the gospel, it will mess with them. And it will mess with them in one of two ways. They'll have a couple of responses. One response, if the gospel messes with someone, is to acknowledge their sin and to bow their knees and their hearts to the Savior. But there's another response. If the gospel messes with someone, they may turn around and mess with you in mockery and persecution. And it may be that it's just in their mind, or maybe it's behind your back, or even to your face. But there is a reality that the gospel messes with people. And Jesus told us that sinful man loves darkness and does not want the light of Christ in their life. So we see that the response from the world to the Christian, is that of persecution. But what is the response from the Christian to the world? It should not be fear. It should not be condemnation. It should not be retreat from the world. Instead, salt and light. Notice, Jesus has not given his disciples a command to be something. Jesus is not urging his disciples to be something that, that they're not. This is a statement in fact. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are salt and light. And in the same way, if we claim to be followers of Christ, it is a statement that we are taking responsibility in the world to be salt and light. Nothing less than that. And so this morning I want to consider four questions. The first one is, why does Jesus use the image of salt and light? Second question, what hinders us? from being salty and showing light. The third question would be, what enhances our saltiness and our light? And finally, if we're living up to who we are, salt and light, what should the result be? So our first question, why does Jesus use the image of salt and light? Salt, as we know, is a seasoning. It enhances the taste of food. And Paul picked up on this in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He tells us, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we see here our words are always to be gracious to those outside the church, to those that are not believers in Christ, that, they, that our speech will be seasoned with salt. But there was also another more significant use for salt, and that is before the time of refrigeration and before the time of freezers, salt was used as a preservative. So when Zadok would bring home a huge hunk of meat, and I mentioned Zadok to make it more realistic for us, I had my kids look up and find me a good name in the Bible. That's what they came up with. So when Zadok would go and he'd get a hunk of meat, he would bring it home, and when they needed to use it or prolong it to be able to use for another meal, 
Zadok would rub salt into it, or he would soak it in salt. And therefore, that would, do it, would preserve it. It would hinder the decay of the meat. And so salt hinders decay, and I can't uh, begin to explain, nor do I care to, of why salt does that. I just know that it does. Uh, but the next thing Jesus says is we are light of the world. And what does light do? That's easy. Light permeates darkness. It overcomes the darkness. And Jesus' point is clear. His mandate for his disciples is to be like salt permeating the world and hindering corruption. And also as light to shine in the darkness, to call people out of darkness into the light of the gospel. And the world has a desperate need for men and women, youth and children, to be salt and light. I probably do not need to stand up here and convince you that our world is in trouble. But let's just take a moment and think in terms of the realm of relationships in our world. There are the relationships in our families that at times are full of strife and jealousy and mistrust and various forms of abuse and a culture of divorce. And beyond that, in our society, the relationships in the society reflect violence, heinous crimes that are committed that are unthinkable, that we see nightly on the news or read in the papers daily. There is little regard for the sanctity of human life. There are hate crimes of various sorts, murder, racism, you name it, that takes place within the relationships of our society. And even going beyond that, the relationships from nation to nation, wars and rumor of wars. The world left to itself is like meat without a preservative. It will only tend to fester. So what's the answer? The answer is not in technology. That's not what we need. Technology isn't a bad thing, but ultimately that's not going to be the answer. The answer is not good politics. The answer is not a great economic strategy for our world. The answer is not in scientific discovery because we do not have a knowledge problem. What we have is a moral problem. And the answer that the world desperately needs is you and me living as salt and light in this world. It is a profound calling that Jesus has given us. He says, you are salt and you are light. It is a profound calling. It is a responsibility. But as Christians, we are to, there's to be nothing less in our lives than to live for, as salt and light in the world. But notice the warnings in this passage. In verse 13, Jesus does say, you are the salt of the earth. But he goes on, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And in verse 14, we are the light of the world, but a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Again, Jesus' point is clear, that when salt loses its function of salt, it's useless. And it's absurd to think that somebody would actually light a lamp and then hide it. In the same way, we are not to hide the truth of the gospel. We are not to hide the truth of Christ. We are not to hide the truth as Christians of who we are. Just recently, in our upstairs bathroom, our toilet was clogged. And that's the one 
that our children used. So I just assumed, like, a, it's a weekly ritual. If somebody uses too much toilet paper, you got to go unclog it. So I went up there, and I tried everything, and I couldn't get that thing unclogged. And so it finally, it was so bad, I was so frustrated, I just took the toilet apart. So when I actually removed the toilet base from the floor, I looked down, and there was nothing. It was completely clear. So then I turned the toilet over and, and stuck in the bowels of the toilet. And yes, that's intentional. Stuck in the bowels of the toilet is a five-inch long flashlight. Yes. It had been mysteriously placed there. And all, pingers, all fingers at that point, uh, at that point, point to our one-and-a-half-year-old Ty, who is in a great habit right now of throwing everything in the trash and things in the toilet and flushing it. It's his favorite pastime. <laughs> My point is this, to be a bit more colorful. Jesus has called us to be light of the world. But what flushes your flashlight? What, to put it a different way, sorry, what hinders, the second question is this, what hinders our saltiness and our light? It was Jesus himself who called us to be in the world, but not of the world, or another way to put it, to be against the world for the world, but only Jesus did that perfectly. And so if we desire to walk the path of being in the world but not of the world, or against the world for the world, we have to understand that we're going to be prone to veer off the path into a ditch. And there's a ditch on both sides of that path. One ditch is to be so in the world that we are completely of it, that we have conformed to it. But there's another ditch on the other side, and that is to be so not of the world that we're too separate from it that we are no longer functioning as salt and light in the world around us. So let's first consider some unbiblical responses to the culture around us. And I will be borrowing a lot uh, from the thoughts of Jerem Bars, one of my former seminary professors, in his book, The Heart of Evangelism. He has a chapter that has great insight on um, basically unbiblical responses to the culture around us. The first response is fear. Many Christians are very fearful of the culture around us, and we see that pockets of our culture are deeply hostile to the Christian faith. In Lawrence, just look at the intellectual culture around us because of our beloved university. And not only that, but the pop culture around us based on movies and TV and music and all that. Our society has definitely drifted past post-Christian and at times to absolute anti-Christian sentiments with regard to our faith. And that can cause fear in us, fear for us and fear for our children. So what is our, if our response is fear, what do we need? What we need is to be reminded that Jesus tells us, do not fear the world nor the evil one, but fear God. And what we'll have to do is reclaim the promises that the Lord has given to us and to our children, the promises That he will keep us safe, that he will bless us, that he will provide for all the needs, that he will deliver us into his kingdom. God's word calls us to repentance, it calls us to fasting, and it calls us to prayer, but it doesn't call us to fear. 
when we feel overwhelmed with the culture around us. A second response of many Christians is to just simply condemn the culture around us and to condemn the non-believers in our culture. Whether that's our neighbors, it could be people within our community, or it could even be public figures, say presidential candidates. It's very easy for us to condemn at times. But what we're doing when we condemn others is really we're patting ourselves on the back and we're congratulating ourselves that we are not sinners like them. And is that appropriate? I think not. What we need to consider if we are prone to condemn others, we need to consider the words from Jesus in Luke 18. If you can turn, please, to Luke 18. Luke 18 and verse 9. Of course, we are to discern sin. But Jesus' words to us about condemnation of people is very important. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." This is a great warning against pride. Who is the one that God honors in this story? It's the one that has a heartfelt recognition that they need the very grace and mercy of the Lord. And so instead of judging and condemning others outside the church, we are to imitate Jesus. And what did Jesus do? What does he tell us? He tells us we are to love our enemies. We are to do good to those who hate us. We are to bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us. I must say that this has produced a good challenge for me, especially as I've been interested in in getting more involved with watching the the presidential candidates. Because at times, I find myself just wanting to mock them and their views on various things. And it's in arrogance that I do that. And the challenge for me, and maybe... For, for others that might be sitting here this morning, is instead of mocking, whether it's a presidential candidate or someone else in our neighborhood or in our community, to actually pray. Pray for that person. Pray for our nation. Pray for our culture around us. It's easy to condemn, but Jesus has called us to love in a way that is profoundly impactful as salt and light. Another response to the surrounding culture is retreat and separation. And let's face it, it is easier to gather in Christian safe circles than it is to be involved in the world around us. It's easier to invite Christian friends over for dinner than it is our neighbors. It's easier to be involved just in church activities than it is to be involved in the lives of those around us. But what are we called to? Are we called to retreat and be safe? 
or are we called to live as salt and light in the world around us? If we're prone to retreat, we must remember Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And we can find that in John 17. Please turn to John 17. In John 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus that he prays for his disciples. And in particular, verses 14 through 18, I believe will be very helpful to us. Jesus says this, he prays this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus' prayer here is not that we will be taken out of the world. No, he prays for our protection. And he prays that we would live holy lives so that we'll have something to speak to those around us to give them hope. And that is namely Christ. It is a great model of a prayer for us. Jesus was criticized because he was friends with sinners. And it should cause us to ask some questions about our own lives. Who are our unbelieving friends? Who are the sinners whom we gladly love and share our lives with? Who are the ungodly who welcome us gladly and enjoy time spent with us? One side of the ditch is to have no influence in the world as salt and light. But there's another side of the ditch as well. And that is to be so of the world that we have completely conformed to it. The other side of the ditch is assimilation. Or another way to put it, it is, it's the chameleon. A chameleon blends into whatever culture it's part of. There's no distinction whatsoever. But God has not called us as chameleon Christians. It's not called us to go the way and blend with our environments and the pattern of this world around us. We are called to be different, and that is our strength. Conformity can take place for many reasons. It can be lack of discernment. If we are not necessarily spending time in the Word and the Scriptures to be able to see clearly who God is, who we are, and our calling as salt and light in the world... There's other reasons that motivate conformity. It could be that the enticements of the world around us, the lust for pleasure and for wealth and for beauty and popularity and all that stuff can be so enticing. And as well at times, maybe conformity is just because we just want to fit in. But I want to share a story that illustrates the danger of unwise conformity. I was probably about 10 years old This was after a great snow, and school was canceled, and so all the Donahoe boys decided to go sledding together. I have three older brothers, so if I was 10, they're roughly 12, 14, and 16. So across from our house was a big pasture, and in that pasture was a great sledding hill. It was huge. And so we went over there, and we were having a blast sledding for most of the day. And then at one point, my brothers came up with a brilliant idea. They said, okay, Chad, we got, it. we got a great plan. We're going to put our sleds together, and you get on our backs, and we're just going to go flying down this hill. And, and they were really talking this up. So I thought, well, first, rather than picking on me, they're actually wanting to associate with me. That was very appealing. 
And they talked this up like this would be the greatest moment in Donahoe sledding ever. So I said, absolutely, I'm on. So I get on their backs, and we go screaming down the hill. And it was great. It was a fun ride. Until about the time we almost got to the bottom. Then without warning and without word, my brothers veered off in opposite directions. And I mentioned it was a pasture, right? It was a cow pasture. And right in front of me, as I am full speed ahead, is a pile of cow manure. It was awful. It was awful. The only, the only redemptive part of that is, is the kind of trouble they got in when they got home. Um, but it was bad. But the reality was, I was so eager and so excited about the ride that I did not discern. I did not think in terms of, huh, who are these people that are inviting me to come along? Yeah. My brothers. I should have known something was up. And the point is simply this, that the ride of the world may look great. And the enticement for fun can be so compelling But we have to recognize, we have to look ahead and see our actions and the consequences of it. Because the world can take us for a great ride for a while, but eventually we will be left in a pile of stink. And we will have great regrets. The world has great opportunities for us. Great opportunities for job promotions, as long as we compromise it a little bit. Or great opportunities for popularity in social circles, as long as we compromise just a little bit or great opportunities for entertainment with music and movies and TV, as long as we just compromise a little bit. Great opportunities for conversations with our coworkers or classmates, as long as we compromise a little bit. But it's the compromises that continue to erode away our ability to be salt and light in the world that so desperately needs us to be salt and light. So what enhances our saltiness and our light? In other words, what do we need to do in order to live as salt and light? Really what we need is we need to see clearly. And by that I mean we need to be able to look back at the cross and at Jesus and see clearly the way that he has prepared for us to be salt and light. Because of the fall of mankind... As we've already mentioned, the world is in trouble. But what has God been up to? What has God been up to? I want to run through a few verses. I'm going to read them. You don't have to turn there. In fact, I challenge you to even try to catch up. I'm going to go fast. The first one is Isaiah 42.6. We see here the promise of the coming Messiah for a dark world. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And further, in Isaiah 49.2, or 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Okay, so, so far we're in the Old Testament. So we kind of have to play along. You don't really know quite who we're talking about here. But then we get to the New Testament, and we see in the book of Matthew that Jesus comes on the scene. And here's what Matthew tells us in Matthew 4.16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then in John 8, verse 12, Jesus himself declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then in John 3, 19, we read this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And the result of that is that the light that came into the world, the one true light, was crucified. But as we proclaim together in the Apostles' Creed, that I will read just briefly, he was crucified, dead, and buried. But the third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So we see God's promise of redemption continues. His plan has not folded. And we went on to read in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And this is crucial for us as salt and light to recognize that we have the very power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit works in this world to convict the world of sin, and he uses us, our lives and our lips, to help convict the world of sin. And the Holy Spirit helps us to live as righteousness and to call people to Christ as righteous. But we have to recognize in this world we must depend on the Holy Spirit. We must walk moment by moment asking the Holy Spirit, asking God to truly empower us to live as salt and light in this world. So we have to see clearly. We have to be able to look back at the cross, at what Jesus has already accomplished, the way he has already prepared for us to be salt and light. But then as well, we must look forward. And that is, we must be able to look forward to the final fulfillment of all things, which for us is the hope of heaven. And we see this, I think, beautifully in Revelation 21. If you can turn to Revelation chapter 21. It gives us the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And as believers, we have to be able to look back at the cross. But there's times as well we've got to be able to look not just back, but we have to be able to look forward at what our hope is. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of water of life without payment. The one who, is, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is a beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the hope of heaven. It's what, is, it's what we are being prepared for. So this helps us to understand that we're, we really are not to get too comfortable in this life, that more is coming. 
But then look at verse 8. Verse 8 continues, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And this last part is the imagery of hell, and this should be very sobering to us. This list describes those that have not bowed their hearts and their knees to Christ. This list includes our neighbors, people within our families, people within our schools, our friends, our coworkers. This should be very sobering to us. On one hand, we have the hope of heaven, and we are to be otherworldly other in that sense. But at the same time, we are also called to the world as salt and light. There is still work to be done. God is advancing his kingdom, and he is still seeking worshipers. And yet, God uses us in that process, and we have a huge part to play. So we must ask, since we live between the times, since we live between the time of the cross and we live between, or the time of the cross and heaven, what then, how shall we then live? And the answer, again, is as salt and light. We must understand who we are as salt and light. As salt, we are to hinder the decay and the corruption of the culture around us. But as light, we are to shine the light of the gospel. And so that people can understand and embrace Christ is. Maybe we can think of it this way. Our lives are to be as salt in the sense that with our behaviors, our conduct in the world, people should see our lives as salt and pause. It should give them pause. It should cause in their minds to wonder, what is truly different about this person? What is significant in their life that causes them to live and act in such a way? And this opens up the reality for us to be light as well, in the sense of shining the light of the gospel in their eyes. Our lives must speak loudly wherever God has placed us, whether it's in our families or at work or in school or in the areas of play. Do you see and embrace your calling as salt and light? Another question we should ask is maybe this. Have we earned the respect of those around us with our lives, which gives us the ability to speak the truth of the gospel loudly. Our last question is, if we are truly living as salt and light, what will the result be? And we find the result in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is clear, it cannot be about us. Our lives and our actions cannot be about us. It cannot be about our own glory and how great we are. Our good deeds, which which is our practical kindness to the world, that's our neighborly love, that is to shine the light of Christ. In other words, we really are to be like the moon. What does the moon do? The moon simply reflects the greater light of the sun. That is our calling as well, to reflect the greater light, the greater love, the greater life of Jesus in our life. To a, to a watching world. 
this is not just a mandate for the church. Our church, um, our church does wonderful things. I'm encouraged as I look and see whether it's the, uh, the group of guys that went to Greensburg with relief or the trips to Mendenhall, Mississippi, the care and compassion ministries, the visiting of people in the hospital or bringing meals to people or the orphanage ministry. There's tons of things that are going on which allows us to be salt and light in the world. And yet this is not just a mandate for the church. It's a mandate for our personal lives as well, that we are to live our lives as salt and light. So maybe we feel overwhelmed at the culture around us, at the opposition. Maybe it feels hopeless. But think through the reality that we have here in the scriptures. Look at the disciples. They were few in number. And yet look at the profound impact they had because of the reality of their life being salt and light. We may feel overwhelmed, but we are never to be cynical. The Christian is never to be cynical. We can be overwhelmed, and we should be, with the suffering of the world around us, but not cynical. We look back to the cross, and we see what Christ has already done. He's He's provided for us to be salt and light. And the reality is we have the Holy Spirit in our life that guides us and leads us. There is no reason for us to have cynicism. But instead, we are to remember that God is with us. He was with the disciples. He still continues to be with us. And the last words of this book of Matthew, I think, are crucial for us. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your presence in our lives, that truly you are with us to the end of the age. And thank you for your Holy Spirit, that it convicts us of sin, but it also leads us to righteousness, and it leads us, and it convicts the world of sin. And I pray that you would help us, cause us to walk with you moment by moment in faith, that we would live as salt and light in this world. I pray for the men and women in here, in the various circles of work and social lives and in neighborhoods, Lord, that profoundly we would be salt and light. Cause us to take steps in that direction. I pray for the youth in here and the children that are in various activities and at school. Oh, Father, protect them, but I pray also that they would see themselves boldly as salt and light, that they would take the hope and the message of the cross to a desperately decaying and dark world. Help us to live for you. Thanks for your goodness to us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.